Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's remember that our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them, Ventura campus. If you've been coming to church here for uh, any amount of time, you know that we are passionate about planting churches. That's part of our calling. That's part of what we do. From this little church here, we've started realities in Ventura, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Stockton, Boston, London is starting this year. And then as we announced to you a few weeks ago, after that is reality Honolulu, right? Which we are very excited about. Now, part of what we do when we're planting churches is we have these people with us that we're sending out to plant churches uh, with us for a time here in Carpinteria. This is where it comes from. That's why Tim Chaddock and his family, Lindsay and their daughters were recently here and Tim was teaching for a while and we just got to develop heartstrings to him and catch a vision for London and what God wants to do in London, how God wants to use us in that church plant. It's a time for these church planters to be equipped here amongst us as we prepare to send them out. And so uh, our next church planner for Reality Honolulu, whom you know, Ryan and Zoe Hilner, who we've already talked to you guys about. Give them some love. Look how beautiful they are. That is Ryan and Zoe. Zoe's a good-looking one. And that is Eva on Ryan's shoulders and baby in the belly, soon to come. Uh, Ryan has been here at Reality since the very beginning. He was our youth pastor for quite a while and then was a general pastor for us. And now he's an elder here at Reality. When we started Reality Santa Barbara, he went out there to get that work going. He's been there for the last four and a half years four and a half years this week, actually. And so this Sunday is his final Sunday at Reality Santa Barbara. Next week, he and his whole family will be here at Reality Carpinteria with us until the end of this calendar year. They'll move to Honolulu at the beginning of the next calendar here. So they'll be here uh, for us to love them, for them to love us, for them to pour into us, for us to pour into them, a time of equip, equipping and preparation as we move toward planting this church. We will be planting Reality London uh, this fall. Tim and Lindsay and their family are already there. We have the prayer tour this summer. The following summer, we'll have a prayer tour in Honolulu, our greatest attended one ever, I am sure. <laughs> And then that fall, early in that fall, Lord willing, we'll be starting that church. So next week, you will see Ryan here, and you'll get to hear from him. I want you to love him embarrassingly well, along with his wife Zoe and Eva and the baby to come when you see them. Okay, good? Okay, that's what we're doing, a time of preparation for our next couple of church plants. We are in the book of Matthew together. Let's open up now to chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we are going to finish that chapter this week, looking at the second half of it. Last week in Matthew 4, we saw the temptation of Jesus. We saw there that Jesus did what humanity failed to do in the garden, what Israel failed to do, failed to do in the wilderness, and what we fail to do often, which is be victorious over the schemes of the enemy. Jesus is the great king who conquered Satan, who came to destroy the works of the devil, on our behalf and for our good. We saw that last week. Now in our text, which is verses 12 through 25, we're going to see Jesus begin his ministry. We're calling this sermon the summons of the king. He is summoning us to something here as he begins his ministry. So we'll read verses 12 through 25. I'm reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible. And then we'll pray and we'll talk. 
It says in verse 12, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land, in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. Excuse me. Pardon me again. And he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains and demoniacs, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for opening up the truth about Jesus to us today. Thank you for revealing your Son, our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, to us in your word. We ask that by work of your Holy Spirit, just that would happen this morning. We get a, a more wonderful glimpse of who Jesus is, what he's done in our lives, and what he wants to do, his, his call upon us. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would help us to rejoice in who Christ is and his work in our lives. Please, Lord, give us ears to hear. Help us to see more of Jesus in your word. And please, Lord, you know, uh, you know I'm sick and I need help. I just need help, Lord, to teach and preach. I need physical help, spiritual and emotional and mental clarity and help. So please help me, Lord. I don't want to be a hindrance. I want to be of great service to your church today by your grace for your glory. So we ask together that you would help me and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, Jesus is beginning his ministry here. He had previously been in the Judean wilderness where he confronted evil and won. Someone say hooray. He confronted the devil and he won. And then we're told that he departed into the Galilee when John was taken into custody in verse 12. John the Baptist is arrested. This great prophet gets arrested by Herod the king. Why was he arrested? We're told later on in Matthew, he was arrested because he wasn't afraid to confront immorality and political leadership. Herod was a king. He was sleeping with his brother's wife, his brother Philip's wife. 
And John was confronting him about it continuously. He expected character from the political leader who would have thought. And the king did what kings do. He put him in jail for confronting him about his immorality. And now Jesus withdraws into Galilee. And then we see in verse 13 that he leaves Nazareth, which is where he grew up, right? And it says that he settled in Capernaum. And Capernaum, which we'll learn much about as we're journeying through the book of Matthew, becomes the headquarters of Jesus. This is where he will do a large majority of his ministry uh, that we'll see throughout the book of Matthew. It is a little town situated on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It has been thoroughly excavated. If you go to Israel today, you can go there. You can see an actual synagogue that Jesus taught in. You can see a home, the, the, the foundation of it that they thought was Peter's home. You can see there the main road that ran through it, which was called the Via Maris, which was a main international trade route that ran right through Capernaum at the time. You can go there and you can see the ruins. It's in ruins now, but during the time of Jesus, it was major hustle and bustle. This was a major trade center. This was a center for culture and excitement. And obviously, there was a big fishing industry there. And Jesus settles in Capernaum. He'll do lots of miracles here. He'll be based from here. We see him calling some of his disciples here. That's where he is. And interestingly enough now, in the next few verses, starting in verse 14, Matthew ties this, Jesus is settling in that area of Galilee, to some ancient prophecies. Matthew's been pointing out throughout his book whenever Jesus fulfills a prophecy. Not all of them, but many of them. In his life and ministry, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew will point out a few for us. The reason that he does this is he wants to tie the story of Jesus to the bigger story of Israel and the bigger story of humanity. And so he takes us back into the story of humanity in Israel in the Old Testament to show us how Jesus fulfills the story, how he's the answer to the problem of sin, how he's a long-expected king and Messiah, savior and deliverer that Israel and indeed all of humanity were looking forward to. And this particular prophecy given 700 years earlier by Isaiah is of interest. Look at it again. I'll explain it as we walk through it. In verse 14, this was to fulfill, fulfill excuse me, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That is just some geographical cues that will kind of bring some other things to mind. Let me explain one or two things. Zebulun and Naphtali were originally sons of Jacob, part of the 12 sons of Jacob that became the the 12 tribes of Israel. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those tribes. When Joshua led Israel into the promised land, later on in the later chapters, they divided the promised land up and gave certain regions to certain tribes. And Zebulun and Naphtali were given the area by Galilee, northern Israel and north of there. Dan was also up above them a bit. That was another tribe. But they were the tribes in that area. And they would become part of the northern kingdom of Israel. So that's Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, land of Zebulun and Naphtali. By the way of the sea, that's a reference to the Via Maris, this ancient international trade route that ran through there beyond the Jordan, beyond the Jordan Valley, and then it says, Galilee of the Gentiles. There were a lot of Gentiles there, partially because of the Assyrian invasion and uh, resettling of the land later on. It says, for these people, verse 16, 
The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, why are these people in darkness? Why are they pictured as being in darkness? If we trace it back to Isaiah and what we're told there, Israel was in rebellion to God, as they often were, as we often are. And God would discipline Israel, and he would discipline them different ways, as he does in our lives throughout time. But this time, he would discipline them with an invading army. It was the Assyrian army that I previously mentioned in about 722 BC. They would invade the northern kingdom, this area here. They would take these people, exile. They would resettle the land with Gentiles. That's why it's Galilee, the Gentiles. Some of them would come back and resettle, but the northern kingdom would never be the same. Let me say it to you simply in a different way, a way that we can connect with. They were sitting in darkness because they were suffering under the effects and the consequences of their own sin. Can anybody relate? Suffering the effects and the consequences of our own bad choices. Happens to us, it happened to Israel. And so what it felt like for them is what life often feels like for us, a space, a place of darkness from which we want deliverance. A shadow on us of death, the wages of sin is death into which we want a light to dawn and a light to penetrate. And he's reminding us of this reference from Israel to tell us, from Isaiah, excuse me, to tell us that Jesus is the light that has come into the darkness. That Jesus is the answer to the weight and the effects, the penalty and the power of the sin that they experienced. Though they felt the weight of the darkness and they sensed the shadow of death, They were unable to deliver themselves. There was no light they could create that was bright enough. There was nothing they could do to dispel the darkness and the shadow of their own sinful choices. So what they could not do for themselves, God did for them. That quote is from Isaiah chapter 9. And later on, a few verses later in Isaiah 9, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So it becomes clear if you're part of the original audience, which was Jewish, And you hear Isaiah reference the first few verses, or you hear, excuse me, Matthew reference the first few verses of Isaiah 9, it would bring to mind that messianic promise. Right? We're in darkness. We're under the, excuse me, weight of our own sin and choices, but there's coming a deliverer who will break the rod of the oppressor and remove the weight from us and deliver us and rule in righteousness. This deliverer is Jesus. He's announcing wonderful news here when he gives us this prophecy. And again, it's said there at the end of Isaiah 9, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is a salient point in Bible study and in this text. God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves from the power and the penalty of sin. God in Christ has delivered us through his work on the cross and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the light. 
that confronts the darkness. Look what Jesus would say about himself in John 12. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And Jesus is the one who delivers us from darkness. Look what Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1. Excuse me. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Someone say, thank you, God. Jesus is the one. Someone say, help them, God. Is that gross? I'm going to mute my mic. Okay, thank you. Jesus is the one who has delivered us. Now, this fact of God doing what we cannot do is the same thing that we saw in the temptation of Jesus last week. You remember, he's the one who defeated the enemy and his temptations in the wilderness because humanity failed to do it in the garden, right? Israel failed to do it in the wilderness, right? And we fail to do it in our lives, right? So we need a victorious king and savior. His name is Jesus. He defeated the enemy. He now steps into the darkness and then he preaches a sermon. Of course, why wouldn't he? But you'll love his sermon. It's in verse 17 of our text. Well, you might love it. You might actually hate it, but you'll love the brevity of it. Verse 17 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's why you love it. It's so short. (laughs) I preach for 56 minutes. Jesus had five or six words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've been with us in the study of Matthew, that should be familiar ground for you. John the Baptist gave the same exact sermon, verbatim, word for word, in chapter 3, verse 2. He came and said to Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything is changing. The kingdom is breaking into this world with the coming of the king who is Jesus. So the response of humanity is meant to be repent. Repent means to change direction. You're going the wrong way. You're going the way of rebellion. You're going the way of the world. You're going the way of the domain of darkness. Repent and go the way of the kingdom. And the kingdom is a very simple message. Same message that John the Baptist gave, which was an old message already. It was, had always been the message to Israel, go God's way. Jesus gives it. It's the same message that we hear today. Go God's way. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I won't belabor the point because we studied it a few weeks ago when we looked at the life and ministry of John the Baptist, but the idea of repent is not to feel remorse. It's not to say I'm sorry. It's to have a mind and a heart change about the way that we're going. It's to have a mind and a heart change about the way that we're going. And so redirect the way that we're going. It is in biblical nomenclature to turn from our sin and to God. It's not to say I'm sorry and do it again. It's not to feel bad about doing it or bad about getting caught. And we're all caught, by the way. It's to have a mind and a heart change about the qualities and the essence, the darkness, the rebellion, the affront of sin before God. 
and to recognize in humility I've gone the wrong way. I want to now go God's way. And in saying this, in saying here in Galilee, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is issuing an invitation. An invitation to go his way. The king has come. King is establishing his kingdom. Here is an invitation to the kingdom. We enter the kingdom through repentance and forgiveness. But now we'll see the invitation drill down a little further and get specific as we meet these four brothers whom we will get to know very well as we study Matthew in the coming months. Verse 18. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Pun intended, I'm sure. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I wonder if you're like me. What strikes me hardest about that, those few verses there is that phrase, immediately they left everything and followed him. Is that what grabbed you guys? I'm seeing some heads nodding yes. Some of you are just checked out. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's, what, that's what grabbed me. Immediately they left everything and followed him. Here's why that grabs us. Because we always, whether we're cognizant of it or not, when we read a story, we're looking for ourselves in the story. It's the same thing as when you look at a picture. When you look at a group picture, who's the first person you're looking for? (laughs) Right? We all know it. Unless you have like a raging crush on somebody, then you might glance at them first. But pretty soon you're looking at yourself. Yeah, we all know that. We do that with pictures. We do the same thing when we're reading stories, when we're reading scripture. Whether we're aware of it or not, we're immediately thinking, well, how does this affect me? Where am I? What does this mean for me? And that's normal for us. But we're not normal people. We are students of the Bible. So we have to realize that the Bible is a book about Jesus, not us. So when we read the Bible, we're supposed to be reading it with this thought. What does this tell me about Jesus? That is to be the controlling logic of Bible study. That's the main idea. Jesus, in any text, is the main point. It's like going back to Sunday school where the answer is always Jesus. Kids, what do you think about so-and-so? Jesus! It never changes. Jesus said the whole of the book is about me. So we look and we say, oh, immediately they left everything and followed him. Ah, I think that's supposed to be me in the story. That doesn't sound good for me. But you see, we read it wrong. Here's what we're supposed to hear most loudly. Here's what should reverberate. Here's what should grab us. Jesus saying, follow me. Think of all that we've been told about Jesus in Matthew so far. 
He's a long-anticipated son of Abraham who would bring the gracious blessing of God into the world. He's a long-anticipated son of David who would bring God's righteous rule into the world. He's God draped in humanity, the very son of God of divine nature. Miraculous in the events surrounding his birth. He is a one about whom the greatest prophet ever, John the Baptist, said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm dipping you guys in water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He's the one who comes on the scene and confronts the devil head on and wins. He is the one that we see in our text in the last few verses there. That he healed the paralytics, the epileptics, the demoniacs, those with diseases and pains. He healed them all. He is this one. And it's this one who steps into that darkness and says to these normal guys, you follow me. This glorious anticipated king, the hope for all restoration and redemption and renewal has stepped into their messy little fishing zone and said, you guys can follow me. That's the part that we're supposed to hear most loudly. That God loves us so much that he sent his son draped in humanity to seek and to save sinners, to issue the wonderful invitation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and follow me. If we read the Bible incorrectly and we read it with us as the main point, we're going to get discouraged and we're going to get lost. But when we read it with Jesus as the hero and the main character and the main point, then we see that this is indeed a glorious invitation. He's the king. He has come. He is and will set all things right. And these guys and we are invited to follow him. So why then, in light of that, would we be surprised that they left their nets immediately? Who cares about nets when you're looking in the face of Jesus? They left their boats. Big deal. Not. James and John, they even left their father. There's something in this text that tells us that Jesus is worth everything that Jesus is worth everything. And when we think about it that way, then we're not so surprised that immediately they left their nets and their boats and their father and followed him. We say, why wouldn't they? What we then become surprised at is our reluctance to follow Jesus in everything. That is what's surprising to me. When I think deeply upon who Jesus is, and this wonderful invitation to follow the king, the victorious, gracious king? Why do I then sometimes hold on to my nets? Why am I so adamant that I don't lose my leaky little boat? Why is there so much that I'm not willing to forsake if this is who Jesus really is? Now, For these guys, it was leaving their current vocation and following Jesus on mission. Jesus said, look, you guys are fishermen. I got something different in plan. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's just a cool little play on words. 
That's exactly what he would do with them. That call is not necessarily going to be our call. We are all called to be fishers of men to some degree. But what I'm saying is we're not all going to necessarily uproot where we are right now with what we do to go do it. Maybe God would call you to do that. Are you open to that? What if God called you to leave everything that you know right now, everything that's comfortable, that surrounds you, that you're familiar with, and and to go do something somewhere else for his glory? Would you be open to that? But for most of us, God is just calling us in Christ to follow him as who we are, where we are, with what we do, and whom we know right here, right now. To follow him. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by follow him. I mean these couple of things. Coming shortly to a screen near you. (laughs) Skip a little bit, brother. Skip a little bit, brother. What we mean by following Jesus. Thank you, Randy. That was my bad. I was skipping around. First thing that we mean by following Jesus is this. Number one, experiencing God's love, grace, and forgiveness. Can't we assume that as James and John and Peter and Andrew followed Jesus, that they would have experienced in a real tangible way God's love through him, God's grace through him, God's forgiveness. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus is to experience these things. For them, when they started following Jesus around Israel, it would have ceased to be about a bunch of old stories and prophecies and promises and it would have become real and tangible and now God loves me. God's grace is upon me. I have been forgiven. They would experience that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are meant to experience that, to really experience it. And just as it would go from ancient stories and promises and prophecies to being real and tangible and now for them, it is meant to leap from the pages of the book and not just be letters in black and red. It is meant to be real and experiential for us, God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness. It's meant to be more real than anything else we experience. And we experience this when we follow Jesus. Think about it logically. We're never going to experience this going a different way than Jesus is calling us to go. Or when we're far from Jesus, we experience this when we follow him. This is part of the wonderful invitation. Come and follow me and experience the Father's love and the grace of God and what it is to be forgiven. To follow him and experience those things. Now, what, 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 might that, what might that look like? You know, if he's, let me put it this way. What are the nets in your life? What are the leaky little boats? What are the relationships that are less than and holding you back? Now, those things for them, those weren't even necessarily bad things. There was nothing wrong with the nets. They're fishermen after all. I'm only joking that their boats were leaky. I'm sure they were totally sound. These were able men. And I'm sure that James and John's father was a fine man. He wasn't calling them away from bad things. Listen now. He was calling them to a better thing. To a better thing. So do we have in our lives lesser things that we're so committed to that it keeps us from pursuing the ultimate thing, Jesus, in any way? 
Can you think about that for a moment? Can you think about that for a moment? Maybe. Okay, let's transition now from good things that are lesser things to outright bad things. Do you have some of those? I do. Anything that you're, you're hesitant to forsake? I do. What, what's the cure for that? Try harder, be better, do more? No. What's the cure for that? Look more clearly and carefully at Jesus. Fix your gaze upon him. The more we follow and see Christ and all of his love and grace and mercy and glory, the less attractive our sin will become. The more we're willing to forsake it because why wouldn't we? If this is Jesus and this is what's holding me back from fully following him, why wouldn't I? And whenever we're called to follow, there's a forsaking that happens. So maybe he's calling us to follow in the area of our sexuality. We have to forsake some immorality. Maybe he's calling us to follow in the area of our finances. We're going to have to forsake some greediness. Maybe he's calling us to follow in the area of forgiveness. We're going to have to let go of some bitterness. There's all these ways in which God is calling us in Christ to follow him. And whenever there's a, a call to follow, there's always the invitation to forsake. And I wonder about myself. If Jesus is wonderful as the book about him says, why am I so slow to forsake my sin? Surely we don't believe that Jesus is calling us to worse things. Follow me. I'm going to make your life miserable. (laughs) That's not the case. God is a giver, not a taker. For God so loved the world that he took everything from them. Is that what it says? For God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver. God is a giver. Second point thing that I mean about following is learning to see, value, and live differently. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To experience God's love, grace, and forgiveness. And then it's learning to see, value, and live differently. You can bet that was the real experience of the disciples. I mean, they had one idea about lepers. They had a whole new idea when Jesus touched one. They had one perception of prostitutes. They had a different one. When Jesus let her fall at his feet and worship him, told her she was forgiven. They had one idea about the sexually immoral caught in adultery. They had another idea when Jesus dealt with a woman caught in adultery. They had ideas about traitors. That changed when Jesus called Matthew and summoned Zacchaeus. They had ideas about hypocrites and sinners, money, power, and religion. Everything would have been turned and turned when they began to follow Jesus and learning to see and value differently. What did Jesus value? Did he value money, sex, and power like their culture did and our culture did? Or was there a different, a different value system in the kingdom? How did Jesus view obedience? Did he see it as optional because of grace? Or did obedience to the Father seem important to him? Did he practice it? Did he expect it? How did Jesus live his life? Did he just kind of say, well, I'll check the God box on Sabbath and then I'll just go my way? Or did he actually commune with the Father and spend time with the Father in intimate pursuit and relationship? And then did he not, in response to that intimacy, engage in ministry where he began to seek and save the lost? You see, the whole, 
a whole sort of ethic and approach and thought pattern to their livelihood would have changed as they followed Jesus, learning to see, value, and live differently. That's what it means to be a disciple. He was making disciples of them. He's making disciples of us. But discipleship begins with following. First, for the first time ever, when we repent of our sins and put faith in Jesus and what he's done on the cross for us, and so we're forgiven of our sins, we're shown mercy, we receive grace, forgiven, washed clean, a second chance. And then continually, as Jesus followers, as we follow him in the daily small decisions. And again, the logic of the sermon is, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? We could ask it all sorts of confrontationally mean ways. Why don't more people endeavor to reach the unreached in the world? Right? Why don't more people go where people haven't heard the name of Jesus? They don't want to leave their nets in their boats. Why don't more people forsake sexual immorality? Because they want to have sex. Why don't more people give generously? Because they want to be greedy. We can put it in these really crass, hard ways, and we're all sort of guilty of that. But I want to return again to the question. Because it's a fair one. Why wouldn't we? Here's why we wouldn't. We're stuck on the idea that if we follow Jesus, it's somehow going to be a less better existence than if we do. And that's the lie of Satan. That's what Satan said in the garden. Eve, God is ripping you off. When God said don't eat from that tree, God just wanted to keep you from good, fun things that everybody should do. God wants to keep you down. That's what we think. Peter had the same thought. Look what Peter said. Let me give you the context first. This is after Jesus' encounter encounter with the rich young ruler. And his, his thing, we all have our things, his thing was his stuff. And Jesus said, listen, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to leave your stuff. And the rich young ruler was not down for it. But then Peter, I love Peter. We can always count on Peter because Peter's just like us. He'll always say the dumb thing, but then he'll also say the awesome thing. He's just like us. Then Peter began to speak and said, well, we've given up everything to follow you, right? Look at good old Pete. They just had this encounter with the rich young ruler and he goes off and Peter looks around like, that guy blew it. (laughs) But Jesus, what about me and my brother Andrew and James and John? We did it. We've left everything to follow you. And in a parallel text, in another account, in another uh, gospel account, it even says, so what will there be then for us? That's a heart behind the question. Jesus, he, he wasn't willing to do it. But honestly, Jesus, honestly now, I've left everything to follow you. What's in it for me? Fair question. Don't look at the screen yet. Don't want to give away the answer. Look at me. (laughs) Fair question. We all have that question. Is following Jesus going to be worth it? That's what he's asking. God knows. And so God responds. Yes, Jesus replied, oh, wow. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Yes, Jesus replied, 
And I assure you that everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. Oh. (laughs) He just kind of slipped that in there a little... Just, but let's keep it positive. Skip that for a minute. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Now, what is he talking about? He didn't mean literally, Peter, you had one net, you're going to have a hundred nets. You had one boat, a hundred boats. James, John, you left your dad, a hundred dads. Who even wants a hundred dads? Only my son. (laughs) What is he saying to him? He's saying, Peter, I have invited you into something more wonderful than anything you could ever forsake in my calling. Peter, if I am ever calling you to let something go, whether it's sin or whether it's just something that's lesser but it's good, if I am ever calling you to let something go, I am simultaneously promising you of better things a better existence, a more rich being. In this life, he said, and in the life to come. This is the very thing that Jesus confronted in the temptation of Satan, where Satan said to him, listen, if you are the son of God, since you're hungry, make some bread out of these stones. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone. Man doesn't live by fishing nets and boats alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus was saying, I have something more wonderful that sustains me than the stuff of this world that I may have to go without. Something more wonderful that sustains me. And it is the love of God in Christ. And Peter had an honest question. And Jesus had a glorious answer. Peter, there is never anything I will call you to walk away from in which I will not bring you into something far more wonderful and satisfying. Man, that that can be hard to believe in real life. That can be hard to believe. Paul helped us out. Paul put some neat grammar to it. In Philippians, Paul said this. I once thought these things were valuable. Pause right there. Don't look at that. Look at me. I once thought these things were valuable. What are these things? He's talking about his whole history. He's talking about his pedigree, his connections, his family tree, his education, his insights. His, he's talking about all the stuff that made him who he was, his reputation, his sort of external qualities. He says in a moment when it comes back, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless. Here's the key phrase. When compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When compared to. That's why I'm saying when we read the Bible, we got to say, okay, the main point, the main thing I'm looking for is the worth and the glory of Jesus. That's why I'm saying when we're struggling with letting go of something, whether it's sin or something good but lesser than, we got to look to Jesus the expulsive power of a greater affection. 
He had really good things in his past. It wasn't like a lot of us. He actually had some great pedigree and some great education and wonderful connections and place and position and power. And he said, when I look at all those things and compare them to Jesus, they're worthless. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Jesus gave it to us in a parable, which is coming next. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus reminded Peter that we are called to something deeper than nets and boats. Paul was saying that we've been given something better in Jesus. And Jesus says that he himself and his kingdom are the greatest treasure, the pearl of greatest price. And no matter what it may cost us to follow him, his worth far outweighs all of it. And when we look into Jesus and we see this through following him, his worth is is always repeated to us. We will finally come to say with the psalmist, Lord, indeed, your love is better than life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. Peter would have some real ups and downs, some future dark moments. He would would go back to those nets and he'd go back to those boats a couple different times. But in the end, Peter would come to see that in his presence was a fullness of joy and that his love, God's love, was better than life. And Jesus would say to Peter at the end of his ministry after his resurrection, Peter, do you love me more than these? You know what these were? The boats and the nets. Do you love me more than the stuff that I'll call you to forsake? Peter would say, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Then follow me. He would say again at the end. And so it struck me that it said they immediately followed him and forsook everything. But when I look carefully at the text and at Jesus, I'm not surprised because in truth, they lost nothing and they gained all. In the same way, Jesus has stepped into our darkness. We too were like Zebulun and Naphtali, the land there, sitting in darkness in the shadow of death because of the penalty and the weight and the power of our own sin. Christ has come and delivered us by our faith in him and his finished work upon the cross and his resurrection. And he has invited us to a different life where we experience continually God's love, his grace and his forgiveness, and we begin to see, value, and live differently. So think about your life today. Where might Jesus be saying to you in that area, in that one area, follow me? In that thing, in that relationship, follow me. In that crisis, follow me. With that heartache, follow me. And then follow Jesus. He'll never disappoint you.
Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your good word to us and the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. Thank you for so great a love. Holy Spirit, again, I pray at the end as I prayed at the beginning, asking that you would help us to see Jesus clearly as the greatest treasure now, the pearl of greatest price. the one who far outweighs anything else we could ever compare to him. Meet us in our places where we're like Peter saying, well, Lord, what's in it for me? Come and find us as we mend our nets, work in our boats, and in the midst of our relationships. And show us a way that we ought to go to follow you because we really believe, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd. Lead us in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. All of our hope is in you, Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.